welcome to risk roundup since the beginning of use of scientific times nation's use of space was more of a demonstration of science and technology superiority while this demonstration was a means to gain global prestige and power that is no longer the case today space is now a contested common it has become a vital part of most nations infrastructure almost every nation today has their satellites in space or have a stake in space or are trying to have a stake in space use of space has now entered a phase where nations not only depend on it for its national security and telecommunications but also for many existing and emerging space systems for all kinds of advances for its governments industries organizations and academia in short referred to as ngioa the relevance of space to the survival of humanity is increasingly becoming self evident due to connected computers computer code and internet today the cyberspace geospace and space are interconnected and the interconnected cgs that means cyberspace geospace and space the cgs world is dependent on the space assets as the cgs systems evolve further along with geospace and cyberspace the space will also be exposed to additional strategic competition security vulnerabilities and even conflict the reliance of the current and emerging cgs systems on space is so profound that only a few hours of space based asset disruption by hackers or space warfare could crash the financial markets and systems causing billions of dollars in losses this could very well endanger human survival to discuss why creating a secure peaceful space environment is a survival necessity for humanity i'm delighted to welcome dr robert g williscroft to risk roundup dr williscroft is a sci-fi adventurer and author of the book slingshot which describes building the first space launch loop welcome dr williscroft we are delighted to have you on risk roundup well thank you for having me i'm delighted to be here wonderful dr williscroft so it seems that space systems are critical for running many systems from energy grids to telecommunication networks to um, border and maritime surveillance to humanitarian operations or environmental and climate monitoring there are so many systems that depends on these space systems now now while space assets provide the technological backbone for critical infrastructure across cgs that means cyberspace geospace and space does it have the sec security infrastructure that it needs that's that's a big question uh, the weak link in all space operations is the initial process of getting whatever it is you're putting into space up there getting it into orbit or or on a path uh, somewhere into deep space and that's the place where nature itself can get in the way as things can go wrong and a rocket can explode or or not run correctly and it's also the place where people who are trying to interfere in the process can insert themselves either in the software side or directly in the hardware side or or even by firing bullets or uh, other projectiles toward the rocket during launch so it's a very vulnerable time it's also a very expensive time the uh, the cost of rockets a uh, fuel is is enormous and most of the fuel in a rocket is used to carry the rest of the fuel that is used to carry the rest of the fuel until finally a small portion of it is used for orbital insertion and this is a uh, this is a problem that has been addressed by several of our billionaires now uh, with reusable rockets with the idea that at least you can save some of the hardware you can save some of the costs in that respect but overall that's still the most vulnerable aspect of space operations yes it is you're absolutely right about that now the world is expected to face extraordinary changes in the coming years because of you know both the public and private uh, getting involved into the space uh, affairs and as nations are trying to compete to have their stake and supremacy in space now in space growth means more satellites more space travel more digital devices more connectivity 
and as a result more data opportunities as well as risk now the emerging trends in the space it reflects significant shifts of both the public and private players and actors all over the uh, you know across most of the nations i shouldn't say all the nations but it's most of the nations and this reveals the reconfiguration of interest influence and investment in the space domain of global politics and power play what shifts do you see in the world politics and power if any when it comes to space well in particular i see the largest shift ongoing as we speak a move from the public to the private sector uh, uh, the uh, bezos who who heads up amazon is planning as we speak to send two people around the moon uh, these are civilians who are paying a hefty price to do this but typically the initial process in something like space travel is always expensive but the price is coming down uh, others are working towards suborbital flights and eventually uh, orbital flights again for paying passengers uh, but no matter how you cut it no matter how you analyze it you still have this enormous cost of all that fuel that lifts all that fuel that lifts all that fuel to get into orbit and this is where the idea of slingshot of a space launch loop comes into play yes that is very true so could you describe what you are proposing in slingshot as far as you know the launch goes because you are talking about the cost of fuel and that is significant unless we probably go towards solar energy and solar based uh, you know powering that it, it is impossible even the logistically how to uh, have so much fuel to be able to go to all the uh, space you know space or mars or you know moon the way you know we want to be able to go well initially and i don't have a problem with solar power of course uh, used appropriately but you can't use it to launch from earth you have to have uh, as we do it now using rocket technology you have to develop enormous thrust and the only way we know how to develop enormous thrust is using rockets and uh, the amount of fuel it's it just mind-boggling the total amount of fuel it takes to lift one small satellite into orbit the the concept of the space launch loop is is dramatically different and what I will ask you and the viewers to imagine is a garden hose that you hold in your hands uh, watering the watering your lawn the water comes out of the end of the garden hose and forms an arc a parabolic arc and hits the lawn some distance away from you if you turn the water up really high and you point the hose appropriately you can make a fairly large parabolic arc uh, what you could do and some people have done this because they just their imaginations work that way you can move the hose through your hands and it will follow the, the it'll actually follow that arch uh, so that the stream of water will hold the hose up and uh, at some point the hose becomes too heavy and it falls but if you have enough water moving fast enough you could move the hose all the way along the launch the all the way along the loop of water this arc of water and it would hold up the hose that's the underlying concept of a space launch loop now understand that I did not come up with this. I spent a year down at the South Pole conducting research and I took some research papers with me and one of the papers I took and read in detail while I was down there was written by a gentleman named Keith Lofstrom who had developed this concept. And uh, when I came out of the pole a year later, I went and visited him and we sat down and discussed the whole process and ended up outlining the novel that became Slingshot to present the concept to the general public. In any case, if you take this idea that I just described using water and a hose, you, you replace the water with soft iron segments, uh, maybe five centimeters wide and a few centimeters thick, and you interconnect them so that you end up with a flexible soft iron ribbon that is five kilometers long, I'm sorry, that is, uh, that is 5,000 kilometers long, you loop it back on itself so that you have a, an arc that is 2,500 kilometers long and then you have the return path. Um, 
you power it with linear drivers and you put appropriate sheath around it so that when it's in the atmosphere, it won't, it won't be subjected to atmospheric friction. If you move this, if you drive it fast enough, about uh, 14 kilometers per second, the entire system will lift itself up to somewhere between 80 and 100 kilometers in height. And you can use various methods for stabilizing it so that it won't tilt left or right. And what you end up with is a system that is very stable, that, uh, that, that forms a structure that is moving through space at escape velocity. Then you can drop elevator wires from two points down to the earth. And there's a very convenient place where this can be done right now. And this is at the, at the equator in the Pacific between Baker and Jarvis Islands. We own both of them. And uh, Baker is very, very near Howland Island where uh, Amelia Earhart was headed when she disappeared. In any case, uh, you can drop these elevator cables down to the islands and then you can run a capsule up the cable and magnetically attach it to this moving ribbon. It isn't actually physically attached, but its magnetic forces uh, cause it to accelerate with the ribbon. And then it releases the, from the ribbon at the appropriate point at orbital velocity or even beyond that. And it can then head toward the moon or Mars or whatever the situation might be. Now, the, the cost of building such a, such a device is enormous. However, the cost of running it is very low. You can actually launch five metric tons per minute, 24 hours a day, and the cost is approximately what it would cost to uh, ship something by railroad or by ocean liner. I see. So is, is this hypothesis that you are proposing, is it being tested by anyone? Are you working with any space uh, company or uh, agency? A scale model is being built right now uh, in, uh, in England. Uh, the uh, International Space Elevator Consortium has been working with the concept. These are scientists from around the world who have been looking at the idea of developing a non-rocket method for getting into space. Uh, in fact, the book Slingshot was launched at uh, the... Uh, International Space Elevator Conference in Seattle in August of 2015 uh, to, to a lot of excitement because this was the first time that the concept had actually been put down in a way that people could understand it and, and, and see how it might, might develop in the real world. But yes, it is being worked on. A lot of money is being thrown at it. And it's interesting, uh, Keith Lostern wrote the, um, wrote the foreword to the book and he discusses in there when this will happen, and the way he sees it, and I agree with him, is that when you have enough, um, enough mass, humans and cargo, to move into space, so that the cost of building the structure in the first place becomes cost effective, the, the price for using rockets to do this grows uh, exponentially as you have more and more material to bring up. And at some point, the two curves cross and it becomes less expensive to, to use a space launch loop. And that's when it will happen. And that could be in the, next, in the next decade or so. That would be very interesting. You know, so is your prototype uh, ready to be tested? Or how is it? Uh, at what state is it? I can't tell you specifically because I'm not the person doing it. But okay, I so do you're not know actively that, involved in that. No, I'm not actively involved. I am actively following it. The guys who are involved have been doing it now for several years, working on the various concepts. The, the, uh, there, there's enormous computer control that's needed to make something like this work. But they're hoping in the next year to have a, a working model that will demonstrate it in its entirety. I see, I see. Now, that would be very interesting to see, you know, uh, how it uh, emerges. Now, as we, you know, go forward with the public, I mean, all the sectors now are actively involved in this. Uh, many businesses, many industries wants to actively go into the space and public-private both, you know, uh, partnership probably could happen in the coming years. Now, in the continuing debate over the competitiveness of nations in cyberspace and space, 
no topic and then engenders more argument or creates less understanding than the role of government so far the government was the only one you know involved in the space uh, exploration what role do you see for governments in the emerging space age because a lot of you know private uh, uh, industries are also getting involved here i think that's the most important question one can ask in this whole topic uh, traditionally government has as you as you just stated government has run space programs because you're talking about tens to hundreds of millions of dollars for any given specific launch and private companies just don't have that kind of resources on an ongoing basis even the private companies who are doing it now are basically doing it for government government is paying them to launch government projects but once you reach a point where you can move material humans and and material into space cheaply uh, just a, a few dollars per kilogram instead of tens of thousands of dollars per kilogram then suddenly private enterprise can move ahead on its own and there's nothing really that government can do to stop them they can they will be able companies will be able to move out into space beyond earth orbit to the moon uh, to 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 the interplanetary space uh, between earth and mars the asteroid belts mining the asteroid belts uh settling on mars uh, moving human habitations there and government probably as i see it because that's the way governments work are going to try to control are going to try to regulate are going to try to uh, keep their fingers in the pot. But more and more as we move away from the planet, I think that uh, people, private enterprise is going to be the major factor. Yes, yes, they are going to be major factor. And now the consequences of this shift that, you know, the private players are getting into the space uh, business is, is that it, uh, it has opened up so many different uh, avenues and it perhaps credibly threaten you know nations use of cyberspace and space because it is not just the space we are talking about it all these three are connected now cyberspace geospace and space and it is likely going to profound bring profound and uh, challenges to the security strategy and defense planning if we are talking about because to address such challenges nations need to profusely think about their strategic operational and resource implications how do you think that we will manage this uncharted territory of space warfare when we still cannot contain the warfare in the geospace or the cyberspace? It's getting very complex. Yes, it is. And the ability of small groups who don't even have a lot of funds to have profound effects is growing, especially in cyberspace where an individual hacker, a smart young man or young woman can insert themselves into a major worldwide process and cause all kinds of havoc, uh, which is one way of defining what warfare is. Yes. When you talk about launch systems, we, at the beginning of this conversation, we discussed how uh, somebody firing a, a rifle bullet into a launching rocket could cause a multi-million dollar project to fail. And this would also be true in a more general sense with a space launch, space launch loop system because you do have fragile, relatively delicate elements that need to be protected. And in fact, that may be where government ultimately finds its best role is in ensuring that uh, private industry is able to continue its efforts in space and elsewise uh, by creating an envelope of protection for them. Yes, yes, that is very true. And uh, another big concern is that space is now becoming accessible to pretty much everyone, if we are talking about satellites. Because now the light mini satellites or micro satellites, nano satellites, pico satellites and femto satellites, they are all in development. So if we launch this uh, in multiple satellite payloads and deploy it in uh, formations with you know, larger mother satellites, then these satellites will transform the accessibility of space. Anyone will have, you know, capability to 
any individual, just like in cyber warfare, you know, in cyberspace, any individual can uh, cause, uh, you know, big, you know, challenge to any entity. They can cause a lot of damage just by using a simple laptop. Similarly, this in space also, because this new development is happening of such, you know, uh, all kinds of satellites. They're like, you know, 10 gram, 100 gram, 1 kilogram, 10 kilogram, or 500 kilogram or more. These satellites, anyone would have, you know, a ability to access that. And, you know, this accessibility is going to be a causing a lot of problem because how will nations regulate you know something like this anyone sitting you know will decide that i want a satellite you know in the space it could be for good use it could be to you know cause a damage how will we control this i think that kind of a question is is really difficult to answer because there are people who are willing to blow themselves up in order to kill people they don't like and we see this virtually on a daily basis on our planet right now. And somebody like that would be perfectly willing to take out a major portion of uh, a satellite system, uh, even though it damages their ability to, to, to live or, or to function just because of the havoc that it causes. And I don't think that we have an answer to that yet. I don't think we know how to stop people like that yet. Uh, and I think this is something that we have to concentrate a lot of effort on. Yeah, that is a cause of concern because we don't know how we will stop what could happen in the coming tomorrow. And we are not thinking strategically about all the risks that could, you know, emerge because of uh, the advances that are happening so rapidly in science and technology and, you know, uh, the development, there is no regulation, no government body or no, uh, there is no collaborative effort across nations that are thinking, that is thinking about, you know, actively what should be done. And I just read that it seems the International Space Station has just installed a new technology known as Delayed Disruption Tolerant Networking which is probably the first stage in a new mission to, that will allow the implementation of a solar system-wide internet in the near future. So if we have the solar system-wide internet access and the cyberspace, geospace and space are connected because of the computer code and the connected computers and internet, the implications are huge. Uh, Keith Lofstrom, the inventor of the uh, Space Launch Loop, has been working on something he calls Server Sky, which is basically small, flat uh, rectangles, uh, less than a millimeter thick, uh, three or four centimeters on a side, that form swarms in orbit, literally billions of them, and they're basically interconnected computer chips. and he sees this as a method for uh, making the internet and cyberspace available to everyone on Earth uh, with, with virtually no cost, especially using the space launch loop system for putting these into orbit. And he envisions these as being, they, they uh, are able to swarm, move, uh, Re relocate themselves using an AI concept so that if somebody were to try and disrupt one portion, the rest would simply reorganize and fix what was damaged in the way that our cells fix something when we get a cut or a burn and over a relatively short period of time, the body repairs itself. And he sees this server sky system as doing the same thing on a planetary basis. And that might ultimately be a better answer than some form of government regulation, which typically is, is too little too late. Regulations are not going to work either in cyberspace or space. So yes, we do need alternative uh, uh, ways of able to controlling this kind of uh, risk that would come our way because it's not just the cyber warfare or space warfare. I mean, there are a lot of space weapons happening uh, that are out there and there are a lot of cyber weapons that are out there. So because space systems contain, there is also this other avenue that because space systems contain a variety of components, that are often manufactured by foreign suppliers. 
you know and uh, there there is an opportunity there for some mischief so there is a potential for compromised hardware not just you know software we are talking about or not just the hackers that we are talking about but compromised hardware also that could create you know a lot of problems for the uh, space or you know space security and it's also create a lot of openings for latent backdoors or bugs or malwares that can be activated once uh, you know the it is in space the it could be satellite or any other equipment that if it's in when it is in space it could be activated because of all these you know uh, compromised uh, hardware that we could have and uh, the ability of the hackers or the systems to be activated like that so th there are a lot of security challenges and that is a cause of great concern that how are we approaching this integrated you know cgs systems because so far if you see everybody talks about you know risk very separately like you know cyber security risk or you know the physical you know systems risk or physical infrastructure this critical infrastructure risk or you know space risk but nobody is talking about how all three of them are integrated and how we need to look at every piece of you know activity that is happening or every piece of process or you know software or hardware every single thing is integrated and how are we going to manage it if we don't have even the understanding about that how this integration is going to make every you know security risk so complex to be managed and let me add one other element that makes it even more complex and that is that when we speak of space, and as you were speaking of space right now, you were speaking of it as it relates to the Earth. But as we move out from the planet, Elon Musk hopes to settle Mars, put a human settlement on Mars and move humanity permanently to another planet. And this is just the first step in an ongoing process where the Earth becomes just one of many loci of human activity and yeah. it's not just the three elements that you discussed from a risk perspective with respect to the earth but now we're talking about those same three elements with respect to other planets yes. and other places and the the infrastructure that exists between them so that it, it grows exponentially yes that is very true that it grows exponentially and as more and more investment and innovation is given to space exploration and with moon colonies just like you are, you are talking about and manned missions to mars looking more and more like reality there is going to be a lot of security risk uh, emerging but also in the same time there is going to be a need for more and more technologies that we will be needing to make those that vision those vision and reality into real reality because you know we have this dream of you know having the manned mission to mars to establishing moon colonies and all that but we do need effective technology for that and where do you what kind of technologies do you see that would be necessary to make this into a reality to go to mars and uh, moon well we have the ability to go to mars right now we have the ability to land on mars uh, we have the necessary technology to create breathable atmospheres, although uh, changing the planet itself is beyond our ability right now. But we have the ability to create oxygen uh, from raw materials on Mars so that the colony could uh, live under a dome and, and uh, expand out and, and become self-sufficient self over time. Uh, where, we, where we are still failing significantly is that Right now, to get to Mars, what we do is fire a rocket and then coast all the way around the solar system and eventually end up at Mars approximately two years later. That's a long trip. And what we need to develop, and we're working on it, are ways of getting from here to there much more efficiently and much more quickly. Yes, yes, that is true. That There's a lot of you know innovation that still needs to happen to make... Uh, uh, those are space dreams a reality but in as far as you know we talk about the cyber security risk or the information exchange that happens uh, between you know the space uh, satellites and the physical you know infrastructure that we have on earth it seems that china has just launched a quantum satellite that is designed to transmit hack proof keys so this uh, 
this would be very effective uh, and the, you know hackers probably would not be able to that easily you know be able to get into the, those systems because uh, the quantum satellite probably would be very difficult for them to uh, penetrate so that is a good you know uh, development that is uh, that has happened uh, from china do you know if we have the same quantum satellites in united states well what i believe what you're talking about are quantum computers uh, within the, within the framework of the satellite it's a it's a different approach to computing uh, we certainly have research projects working with quantum uh, computing uh, but is it hack proof i don't think anything is hack proof i just think it's a bigger challenge it's bigger it's not that easy of course nothing is absolutely you know hack proof but it's not that easy to hack into those quantum computers now, one of the other things that, that you have to consider when you're talking about space travel and and communicating with and working with uh, and s establishing security for uh, human groups that are on Mars or the moon or, or even further out is that we're, we are all limited by the speed of light. It takes approximately 30 minutes for a radio signal to go from Earth to Mars. Now, if you move the uh, human settlement out to one of the moons of Saturn, you're talking about an hour and a half one-way trip just for the radio signal to get there. So you can't have real-time conversations as we, as you and I are having right now, because if I say something and an hour, an hour and a half later you hear it, and then an hour and a half after that, I hear your response. So we have a three-hour response time if you're talking about the orbit of Saturn. Yes, that that enormously complicates everything, including security. True, very true, very true. So we'll have to, you know, come up with some innovation to be able to speed up that time, you know, to be able to communicate. That is uh, one definitely a, an important area for the innovations to happen. But there's also another, uh, you know, important, uh, I mean, everyone knows about the space debris is that, you know, I mean, we have probably more debris in space than the real, you know, functional satellites at this point. So how, how are we going to manage the space debris problem? I did not understand that. The space what problem? The space debris. Space debris. The space oh, debris. Oh, space debris. I'm sorry. Yes. I've got it. Yes. Yes, of course. And that is a problem. In yes. fact, Keith Lofstrom and I were talking about that last week. One of the problems you have with the space launch loop is that this loop, it occupies a, a specific place within, within the space environment. Uh, and you have space debris that is constantly going by and you either have to shield from the space debris or you have to move the launch loop to avoid the larger pieces of space debris. And he has developed a methodology for doing just that, where through a dynamic process, an electromagnetic dynamic process, the loop, without losing its continuous functionality, is able to avoid the debris that's out there. And so, yeah, but it, it is a problem, and it is a problem that will become increasingly severe until entrepreneurs will develop ways of sweeping the orbit clean from debris for a price. Yeah, so that is where uh, that is an area where innovation needs to happen to effectively remove all the debris that is out there in the space. So that is one, you know, another area. But there's also another uh, very critical concern is that over the years, many nations have developed a lot of space weapons. And without an international legal framework to prevent the weaponization of outer space, the destabilization of the space environment is continuing. And the placement of weapons in space is just increasing and increasing. It looks like, you know, there is no stopping to that. So from your assessment, what is the current state of the space weaponry? How bad the situation is and how concerning it is? Well, I think that the concept of space weaponry has been exaggerated uh, from the public perspective. Uh, let's, let's examine briefly, what can you do from space from a weapons perspective? You can have a bomb sitting up there that you can drop strategically. Uh, you can have uh, laser weapons that you could fire strategically. Uh, 
And although people don't think about it as often as, as they do things going from orbit to Earth, you can have a weapon that is used to destroy communication satellites or in other ways do mischief to other things that are in orbit. But in reality, uh, it's much more efficient to fire a missile with a bomb on it than it is to put a bomb in an orbiting satellite that anybody else can shoot down quite easily. Uh, if you wanted to damage a space weapon, you'd uh, launch a rocket with a bunch of steel ball bearings in it uh, that would uh, deploy in the vicinity of the space weapon and it would destroy the space weapon. I don't think it is as big a problem as people think that it is. The, the major worry that I have with respect to space weapons is the damage they can do to the space infrastructure, communication satellites, navigation satellites, and the like. And that's a problem that we can't do anything about except uh, reach agreements that none of us will do that. And as you pointed out, there's nothing to force people to abide by those agreements. Yes, very true. And none of those, I mean, there all these uh, systems that we have in space, they are not global systems. A lot of those systems are, you know, very designed for just nations use. So we, United States could have our own systems, you know, Russia could have their own system, China could have their own, India could have their own, Europe could have their own. So that then, you know, this space warfare comes into reality because if we, during the time of war, any nation decides that, okay, they want to destroy the other nation's space infrastructure, that would be possible to do because then it's not going to impact all the nations. So that is a problem because we know if we come up with a strategy by which we develop global systems, then we don't have to be that concerned about it because everybody is going to be uh, dependent on those systems. So the thought of, you know, destroying those systems would not be there. And that, you know, Nate, the, what we need, the cooperation, collaboration and cooperation between all nations, that would come into place. But that is not the case right now. What, from your assessment, what is the nature of cooperation that is critical for the advance, for the progress and advancement of space at this point? I think your question has an underlying presumption that I am not entirely certain that I, that I agree with. I'm not sure that uh, nations working together can solve this kind of a problem. I think a better approach and one that appears to be happening is that multinational companies, companies that exist in many nations, create the infrastructures that involve more than one nation right from the get-go. And I see this as a much more viable way of, of developing, coming into this cooperation from a from a different perspective, but getting to the same ultimate cooperation. Uh, I, I don't see India, United States, Russia, China, uh, somehow coming together and saying, we're going to make a common system, but I can easily see an AT&T that is located in uh, 300 different company, countries, uh, putting a system in place that is used by all of them, where destroying it destroys it for all of them. I see that as a better approach. Uh, we'll have to wait and see, you know, in the coming years, how that uh, shapes up and what kind of competition emerges and what kind of critical risk emerges because of, you know, so many players that would be actively involved into this, uh, you know, space. Uh, I, I feel very strongly that there will be, we would need in the coming years, a global, you know, framework when it comes to you know space security because there is so much at stake and there is no no single body or no single nation that is governing the space regulations won't work so until unless and until we have a global cooperation ngi cooperation cooperation the way we you know we propose is, is that unless nations its government industries organizations and academia work together within and across their geographical boundaries for the space security or cybersecurity, we would not be able to achieve that security because there will be too much competition and there will be too much of uh, uh, conflict happening because of that competition. So, do what, what? Where do you see? You know how we should be structuring the space governance in the coming years. Regulations are not going to work. How do you see it? Well, as you were describe, as you were discussing the concept, as you laid it out. I was thinking to, my, to myself, 
okay, you put together a group of people, well-intentioned, uh, good men and women, sit down and create a structure that ought to work in principle. And then I ask myself, how do you enforce it? How do you force compliance? How do you encourage compliance? And I don't see a method for doing that. I don't see this. This is why the United Nations is is not very effective because it does not have a way of making nations on Earth comply with what the United Nations would like. Uh, and when you take this off planet, put it into orbit and beyond, the problem just gets that much more difficult to put together in the first place and to describe and to control. Uh, so that again, my, my view of where it's going is that governments will very much find themselves on the sidelines and uh, private companies located wherever they happen to be located, uh, perhaps not even on Earth anymore, perhaps on the moon or on Mars or on one of the satellite, one of the, uh, one of the asteroids, uh, will be doing that which brings profit to their coffers and supplies the services that are, that are being demanded by people on Earth and elsewhere. And I see this, I see the economic advantage, the economic self-interest, ultimately being that which controls the whole system. Let's wait and see. I mean, the, ideally, we would uh, like to see uh, organizations like United Nations to play an active role and be effective in managing these kind of, you know, uh, global challenges when we are talking about the space systems or the cyber systems. But we see that it's not, you know, working effectively. Cyber security also. Cyber systems are not secure. There are a lot of challenges and we have already started building on the space systems based on the, you know, development that has happened in cyberspace. So I'm not sure how, you know, few people will be able to uh, come up with, you know, good strategy and be private players will be effectively able to manage. But I do see that, you know, if we create a blockchain based NGIOA risk management model, that means nations, government, industries, organizations, and academia, that would be, you know, an effective way to manage the integrated cyberspace, geospace, and space. So again, this is uh, still a uh, thought leadership that we are putting together. We are, you know, working on that. And then we will, you know, release that in the coming uh, weeks. And uh, we will see, you know, how, what kind of response we are getting. But unless each and every individual and each and every entity across nations is government industries organizations and academia are held accountable for their actions irrespective of whether it is a cyberspace or geospace or space we will not be able to achieve the security that we should have to be able to you know go into the space age and then you know to have the colonies in you know mars or you know on the moon and you know further explore the solar system it won't be possible so i hope that you know we uh, work towards that and we move towards that if not this we do need to come up with an effective way to manage the security risk because otherwise the, we may come up with great innovations we can we may come up with great science and technology advances through which we can you know build many you know amazing systems but if we are not able to secure those systems then you know we are taking many steps back and we don't want to take those steps back we want to keep going for, forward so let's you know see how in the coming weeks and months and years how we come up with an effective way to manage those security risks because you know all the technology advances are you know does not matter if we don't uh, come up with a way to manage effectively the security risks that comes that are inherently part of that so uh, we will see in the coming uh, weeks and years how we you know it takes a shape but let's talk about your book because i think you know i want to give an opportunity to our global viewers and listeners to hear more about your book and what you are proposing and uh, uh, if uh, what your thoughts are about the space system and what other than the slingshot this book that you have written what other books you have written that could help our global viewers and listeners get a better understanding about where the space is going and what uh, they should be reading you know and where they can get access to that book well i think it's particularly apropos to what we were just talking about 
And I'd like to I'd like to add one little comment to what you said because you it, it struck me that you said unless people are held accountable, these things can't come to be. And I was thinking I don't disagree with that, but the question is how do you hold them accountable, especially when they're no longer on Earth, when they're somewhere else? How does an entity located in Geneva or New York or Washington or Moscow, how does that entity hold people accountable who are so far away that it takes an hour and a half just for a signal to get to them? So that's a real problem that has to be dealt with. But looking at the book Slingshot, uh, what, I, what I did there was to examine what we're talking about, the security aspects, the government aspects, and the technological aspects of actually building it. What would it take from an engineering point of view? What kind of uh, engineering leaders, what kind of workers, uh, what kind of concepts would be required to put this whole thing together? And because it is a novel, it ties in, of course, the, the, the personalities and the, uh, the, the people who are uh, supporting the project, those who are opposed to the project, and and the uh, interactions between them, and the the uh, the attempts at government control, and how the private industry that's building it deals with the fact that they can't avoid the presence of the government, and how they how how that all comes to be as well. So Slingshot looks at that, and uh, those who have read it and who have reviewed it say that it, it deals with it quite effectively and realistically. Uh, now, the the next book in the series is called The Star Child Compact. And let me lay a, a, a minute's uh, background to, to bring the book into focus. Saturn has a moon called Iapetus. Iapetus differs from many other moons in the solar system because of its physical characteristics. Around the equator, Iapetus has a chain of mountains that's about 20 kilometers high and 20 kilometers wide. Uh, from Seen from space, Iapetus actually looks a little bit like a walnut with the ridge running around. Uh, there's no really good way to explain how this came to be. Uh, additionally, Iapetus, the density of Iapetus is very low. Now, if Iapetus were made of ice and snow, it, the density would be about right. But we know that Iapetus is a rocky satellite, a rocky moon. And thus, the only way that one can, well, one of the only ways one can imagine a lower density is if it were hollow. And so for the basis of the novel, I presumed that Iapetus is actually a derelict starship that came into our solar system a very, very long time ago. The nations of Earth, the governments of Earth, within the framework of our earlier discussion, put together an expedition manned internationally by people from various nations, like men and women, experts from various nations, and they, they travel from the vicinity of Earth to Saturn. And half of the novel is the trip to Saturn, and the other half of the novel is what they find when they get there and the impact that it has on human society. But because the geopolitical situation on our planet right now is very difficult, it is, uh, it is frightening in many, many ways, I projected into the near future and couldn't see a solution to the geopolitical problems that we have now, so I brought them along on the trip to Iapetus. And in fact, there is a jihadist stowaway on the spaceship who causes a lot of problems. And because we're dealing with men and women who are fundamentally humane, uh, when they finally figure out what's going on and capture him, they don't want to just kill him. And so they find a way to integrate him into the crew, sort of. But he retains in the back of his mind the jihadist process that he was working on. And this becomes a counterpoint throughout the whole story. So that that that, that gives you some sense of, of, of those two books. And I'm currently working on uh, the, the third book in the series uh, called the Iapetus Federation, where the men and women who have moved away from Earth out into the vicinity of Mars and the Moon and Saturn develop 
an independent nation called the Iapetus Federation, which operates on a entrepreneurial kind of a basis because of the very broad, vast geo geographical spread uh, throughout the solar system of these peoples. And, and the, the story develops then taking some of the themes from, from earlier and carries forward. Great, great. So that's wonderful. So thank you for giving background on all the all your books uh, that you have written, as for especially you know when we talk about the space age and your um, the one that you are currently writing. So I'm sure that our global viewers and listeners would uh, you know like to read that. And uh, uh, thank you so much, Dr. Wilscroft, for participating in this roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on space security. And our global viewers and listeners will benefit tremendously from the information you provided on the space and its future, and especially the areas where we need more innovation uh, so that we can uh, have an effective space age. And even if a single individual or entity can come up with an idea to understand space challenges, space security challenges, and innovation challenges, and innovate based on the understanding they received from the discussion we had today, this risk round of dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that you're very welcome and let me let me give a website where people can can reach me and and my writings robertwilliscroft.com wonderful thank you so much for that so space security and sustainability needs to be a priority for everyone everyone across nations is government industries organizations and academia risk group Cybersecurity risk research center is created for this very reason to identify, evaluate, and manage the risk facing NGIOA and CGS. That means nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia in cyberspace, geospace, and space. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace, they walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. It is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the Risk Roundups, to watch the Risk Roundup videos or hear the Risk Roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree Pandya, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.